the Accidental Safety Pro brought to you by HSI. This episode was recorded May 11th, 2023. My name is Jill James, HSI's Chief Safety Officer. My guest today is Dr. Amber Mitchell. Dr. Mitchell is a bit of a gig accidental safety pro. She has traditional schooling, a master's and doctorate in public health with a focus on occupational health and preventing exposure to infectious disease. Amber has worked with almost every sector of business, starting with the federal government as an industrial hygienist and OSHA's very first national bloodborne pathogens coordinator. Can't wait to hear about that. She's also worked in private sector for large medical device companies and for tiny startups. Amber has also worked in academia and for state government in her roles at George Washington University, Binghamton University, and the University of Texas School of Public Health. Today, she runs a nonprofit called the International Safety Center and gigs in several roles with the federal government, including OSHA, and during the pandemic with NIH's National Institute for Environmental Health Sciences. Like me, Amber also fancies individual health and wellness. She's a certified Pilates instructor and nutrition fitness specialist. You can find her teaching and practicing at her local Pilates, Club Pilates studios. She lives on the water in beautiful Galveston County, Texas, just south of Houston. Welcome to the show, Amber. Oh, Jill, thanks so much for having me. I'm excited for our conversation today. Me too. Gosh, I can't wait to dig into so many of these things just in your introduction. But, you know, this is the Accidental Safety Pro. So where do you want to start in your story? Maybe we start where I realized I didn't want to go. Absolutely. Um, I came up from a family of healthcare providers. My mom was a nurse, my grandmother was a nurse, my grandfather was a doctor, my cousins are nurses or teachers or cops. Or mm-hmm. um, We have a lot of service providers in my family, which I'm extremely proud of. And I thought I wanted to go to medical school. Mm-hmm. So at um, the college age, I was pre-med with a focus in psychology thinking, Eh, psychology is round enough. It's kind of like an English major, you know, you know, you have Mm -hmm. to do something else with it. Mm -hmm. Um, But I was death right around when my senior year came around. um, I was deathly afraid and terrible, terrible test taker, Hmm. terrible test taker. Hmm. Um, I had to take pre-calculus four times in college because I couldn't test out of it. And so I was scared of the MCATs. Makes sense. Yes. Mm -hmm. Um, So while everybody, um, my classmates were studying for the MCATs, I said, "Eh, I'm going to go do something else. Mm -hmm. So I graduated college and I went to live with my friends who hadn't graduated college yet up in a tiny little lake town called Oswego, New York, right on Lake Ontario. And I waited tables. I was really good at bartending and really good at waiting tables. So um, I decided uh, my mom had passed away when I was um, a a junior in college. So I was on my own um, and I really was a bit lost. So I decided to move back home to her hometown, Washington, D.C. And I I bartended some more Mm -hmm. and I started a program at George Washington University for what was then exercise science. Okay. 
I thought I wanted to do PT or exercise science, something involving fit and fabulous people. Mm-hmm. And that year, I realized um, I was a year into the exercise science master's that most people were, wanted to be coaches or continue to train athletes, and I was not athletic. I fouled out of every single basketball game I played in high school. I couldn't run. I couldn't hit a ball for anything. So, but you wanted to be, but you wanted to be fit and well. I get, I get, I get why you were attracted to that. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, so then that year, the School of Public Health opened mm. at GW, uh-huh. and it was part. Get this, Jill. It was part of the medical school. <laughs> I am going, if I step foot in the medical school, technically I am a medical school student. There you go. <laughs> um, the School of Public Health hadn't yet had an official building or anything like that. So I started my master's in public health and wow. worked full time while I did it. Wow. And that's, that's how I ended up getting into public health was realizing I didn't have what it took to take the MCATs. And wouldn't you know, luck would have it that I stepped foot into the medical school for my advanced schooling anyway. So I had kind of made it. That sounds like destiny. <laughs> and any and anyone who's an apprehensive test taker understands this completely. And thanks for the vulnerability in sharing that. I shared that too. Yeah. So so here you are, public health. What did you think it was? Uh, I thought I thought it was what I did, which was the concentration in health promotion and disease prevention. Mm-hmm. So I thought, okay, well, if I don't train athletes, and I didn't want to do mostly exercise science, people do a lot of cardiac rehab. Yeah. Um, I knew I liked the sense of a, a broader health, so programmatic health versus individual health that a doctor might provide i mean a a physician might provide sure um i knew i didn't want to go into nursing um because i had seen what it had done to my mom incredibly stressful profession Mm -hmm. um and my grandparents had passed at this time they both died when i was 16. Hmm. so i was still a, a bit um unrooted yeah. And so I finished my um, my master's degree, paid for it all by myself. With all of that wonderful experience bartending? Yeah, bartending was the best escape, the best networking, the best way to fit into a community. And so I loved that part of it. And then, um, well, I there was an opening for a postgraduate fellowship and I thought, sweet. Mm-hmm. I can postpone figuring out what I want to do for another year, uh-huh. not realizing that that year would set the tone for the rest of my mm-hmm. accidental safety mm-hmm. pro journeys. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So what happened? Well, um, that fellowship was um, one of my professors, Kathy Hunting. She um, had this availability. It was for a fellowship with the Uniform Services University, which is in Bethesda, Maryland. It sits um, on the campus with the Naval Hospital. And honestly, Jill, I had thought about joining the military my whole life. I come from a big military family, and I thought, 
this is a path that I need to explore while being a civilian. Mm -hmm. So they had opened up this program, Postgraduate um, Fellowship in Environmental Health. And I thought, again, this is life leading me down a path that I had thought I wanted to explore Mm -hmm. and didn't know it. And I was young and honestly really excited to be around a lot of military boys, let's say. (laughs) That makes sense. Yeah. Um, And I had two absolutely wonderful uh, mentors that were part of that Uniformed Services University. I still keep in touch with one of them, um, Dr. Welford Roberts. Hmm. And um, so mostly Army-based. So I did rotations for one year. Mm -hmm. It was fabulous. I um, did industrial hygiene rotation, which I didn't even know what it was at the time, at Walter Reed. Army Medical oh, wow. Center. Um, so it was cool to show up on a, on a military base that also had a hospital. Mm-hmm. Um, USAMRID, which is the infectious disease, the, the secret lab infectious disease that the Army has out in Fort Detrick that books were written about and you heard about actually early on with coronavirus. So that was cool. That might have piqued my interest in infectious disease, all the secrets and clearances. Tell us, tell us more about that. Do you mind? Like, I, I don't mind, but honestly, I don't remember most of it because... I, I mean, about the facility and what it does and why it's so intriguing to people. Well, I, I think there are a lot of... There's a lot of pathogenic research that goes on there. Uh, um, it's in a bunker so uh, that if it were to be part of any kind of plot that... Yeah research would be safe, that people would be safe. It was just really cool to show up on this um, this base, which was um, part of, as much as I can remember, um, my family, I mentioned a big military family, yeah. also lived really close to Fort Detrick in Frederick, Maryland. Um, so I had uh, uncles that were in, in the Marine Corps and um, just really part of that military family. So I felt like I was getting back to my roots just being on military bases. And Gosh, right. The, 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 the microbes, for some reason, I had this ability to see how they work. They, they just made sense to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and since I had done a couple rotations in industrial hygiene, I thought, mm, this might be my sweet spot kind of microbes and occupational safety mm-hmm. and then i um i did after that a rotation with the public health service specifically with the indian health service and we had one rotation that was for i think it was for radiation safety at pine ridge indian reservation it's lakota sioux um sioux in South Dakota, Southern South Dakota, right on the Nebraska border. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. I was taken aback by the rotation, Mm -hmm. not because it wasn't wonderful, but because the Indian Health Service physicians and nurses that were there would only do two-year rotations, if that. And it's a very desolate part of the country Mm -hmm. if... If people haven't been on an Indian reservation, 
or a native reservation, I, I highly, highly, highly recommend seeing what this country is. Um, and you know, one thing I remember, Jill, oh my gosh, the, the, um, the restaurant options on the reservation were from what I remember, Kentucky fried chicken and pizza hut. Yeah. And food desert. Yes. And the no streetlights. And so the largest numbers of fatalities were from people walking just on the main road and getting hit by vehicles. The um, the daycare, from what I remember, it was surrounded by a fence that also had barbed wire. And I didn't know at the time if that was for animals or for people or for both. But I thought. I thought, what what a wonderful opportunity to take a fellowship like that to explore things that you never would have yeah. if you had gone a more traditional route or if you if I had stuck with taking the MCATs and going to medical school. Mm-hmm. And um, right after that rotation, mm-hmm. I was plopped into OSHA for six months. So it was six months of rotations with the Army and Indian Health Service and then six months at OSHA. Interesting. So it led me up, I think, to this. I want to serve people. Yeah. All people. I had Mm -hmm. this passion for keeping people safe at work. Mm -hmm. And then I had this curiosity about microbes. (laughs) Interesting. Your 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 worker justice roots were were firmly founded in those experiences. They were, especially, oh, the radiation safety course that we did um, was also uh, hazardous waste related at this hospital. So we were training Native people at the hospital about health and safety with hazardous waste and infectious waste. And so, I mean, man, right, that couldn't have been Mm -hmm. a better lead in to plopping Mm -hmm. me at the national office in Washington, D.C., Um, right at the time when the bloodborne pathogens experts, so at the national office, as you know, since you've been there Mm -hmm. and have worked for the agency, there are experts in different fields. And the bloodborne pathogens expert, the one who wrote the letters of interpretation and who people called, was moving over to a different job. (laughs) And the lady that led the Office of Health Enforcement it was called the Office of Health Compliance Assistance back then, mm-hmm. was Melody Sands. And I mm-hmm. love this woman so much. Mm-hmm. She was a mentor. She was grounded. She was funny. She used curse words. She was all about women's power. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, my mom had had left me early. Mm-hmm. Um, and so she just became this amazing force in my life and to start she thought great what am I going to do with an intern like I don't want to stink an intern (laughs) I'm going to have to do so much work she's going to follow me around and I have to tell tell her what to do every minute of the day (laughs) I had to remind her I'm not an intern I'm a fellow it's a little bit different Uh but um I just fell into it and I loved it and so I worked as the as the bloodborne kind of transitional 
expert. Um, and then at the end of the six months, they had a position opened and I interviewed for it. And that started my journey as a government industrial hygienist. That's wild. So is so at this time is where you became the Bloodborne Pathogens Coordinator, the first national like you're talking about, like I explained in the uh, in the opening. Or did that come next? Uh, yeah, I functioned in that role, um, answering questions from the field about bloodborne compliance. And yeah. um, but then in 2000 is when the Needle Stick Safety and Prevention Act came out, which was part of. Mm -hmm. adding requirements to the OSHA bloodborne pathogen standard and I remember over Christmas vacation it was going from the Clinton administration into the Bush administration Mm -hmm. Um, we needed to get that language in the standard ASAP so that the Clinton administration could get credit for it Mm -hmm. before Mm -hmm. inauguration in January so we worked over Christmas to update the standard and um, then it was just natural. Well, okay, uh, let's say that Amber's the National Bloodborne Pathogens Coordinator then. <laughs> and so I was. Fabulous, fabulous. And my gosh, you know, time and place for that. I, I don't, you know, for, for people who are listening and are thinking, oh, I didn't even know where the beginning of this was. Can you set kind of the stage of, of why that all came to be and why it came to pass? I can. Um, one other major coincidence is that prior to my mother's passing, she was an AIDS nurse for many, many years in New York City. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had already had experience with what it was like to live among um, people living and dying with AIDS. Um, mm-hmm and HIV transmission. So I was hyper aware of bloodborne pathogens simply because I was a child living with a mom who was a nurse taking care of patients. Yeah. Um, Mostly in those days, which was the late 1980s when she was, Mm -hmm. um, people died. Mm -hmm. And um, she would would go out, mostly hospice back then, um, take, draw blood, bring it home, um, overnight, keep it in the fridge and wait for a lab core request to pop up and take it from the little box on our stoop every morning. <laughs> so this was kind of my coming up. It sure was. You were you were growing up with bloodborne pathogens in your in my fridge, right? Yeah. I had to okay. move the the blood to get to the OJ every morning. Mm-hmm. You know that mm-hmm. kind of thing. And mm-hmm. so- at a at a time when people in the country were absolutely freaked out. Yes. Freaked out about even coming close to a human being who had was suffering from AIDS. And that's how that's how it started was the freak out. Ryan White and contaminated blood that was transfused. And yeah, remember the early cases of the dentist in Florida who was transmitting HIV to his patients because he wasn't flushing out his dental lines with air. And all of this was just very Mm -hmm. intriguing. Mm hmm. Um, and so the CDC came up with um, universal precautions back then, turned into standard precautions later. And then OSHA came out with their, with their standard. It was 1991, and then it was enforced, began to be enforced in 1992. There were all kinds of requirements for the use of engineering controls or safer medical devices, mm-hmm. sharps containers, 
um, tr lots and lots of training, exposure control plan for employers, the first mm -hmm. mandatory vaccine, which was the hepatitis B vaccine for healthcare workers. That's right. And technology advanced quicker than OSHA standards do. As, as is usually the case. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, and so in the late 1990s, several medical companies had come out with devices that were better for Sharp's injury prevention, like needleless IV systems and syringes that would retract or cover with a sheath. Um, we've seen a lot of those, especially with mass vaccinations for COVID. And then um, there was a unanimous act that was brought up by a couple of medical device companies and safety advocates, including a member of our board and a global expert in bloodborne pathogens um, and a nursing leader, Karen Daly. Um, and she, you know, went on the trail talking to members of Congress. And so in 1999 and into 2000, the Needle Stick Safety and Prevention Act was passed unanimously by, by Congress, mm -hmm. and it incorporated more of those um, engineering advancements for medical technology in the standard. Mm -hmm. And it also was the first standard to have its only you know, other than the record-keeping logs in um, 1904, CFR 1904, which is the OSHA record-keeping standard. Mm -hmm. The OSHA 300 log, for people who aren't familiar with the terminology. You yeah. got it. It mm -hmm. required people to keep a Sharps injury log on top mm -hmm. of all the other requirements for the 300 because the 300 was really about occupational illness more you know, flu, asbestosis, silicosis, that kind of stuff, and not really for bloodborne pathogens or infectious disease. So this was yeah. a way to add those types of record-keeping requirements into the broader record-keeping space. Yeah, I remember I was just starting my career with OSHA around the time all of this is passing. You know, you're setting time and place, and I was just starting my career. And so in, in inspecting uh, healthcare facilities... Um, and was part of a, a team that just focused on healthcare. And gosh, there was so much education to do at that time. And people are like, what, a separate log for these? <laughs> you yes. Know? And explaining what it all meant and, and who does this law apply to and what do we have to do? And, you know, hepatitis, uh, you know, the vaccine and can people decline it? And oh my gosh, yeah, so much education. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, people um, with with safety backgrounds or even industrial hy hygiene backgrounds or you know safety so used to a physical hazard and a needle stick is a physical hazard but then it mm -hmm. also progresses into what can be a health hazard but industrial hygienists are more chemical and irritant based and so i found my niche in that space because it straddled traditional safety thinking about an acute injury mm-hmm and then traditional industrial hygiene, which is more about exposures over time or mm -hmm. the transition into an illness. Mm -hmm. And so it felt like the perfect space to be. I didn't realize I'd be in it for so long, though. <laughs> yeah, so what, so what happened next? So you're, you're at OSHA. Things are, you know, you're, you're apparently having a celebration because you got that passed. You got the act passed. Yeah, it was incorporated into the standard. We had mm -hmm. to do a bunch of training for mm -hmm. our compliance officers. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and then I, I loved it. I was a, I was a big fish in a little professional pond, mm-hmm. um, meaning content wise or expertise wise. Yeah. yeah. OSHA is a, a huge pond. <laughs> yeah. Huge pond. Um, and then I got to I, I got to do a lot of communications with medical device companies who would write in, back mm-hmm. then it was letters, mm-hmm. would write in letters to say, how does this standard apply to me? Do If people are, in hospitals are using these devices, do they need to evaluate new ones? Why? Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. I talked to a lot of medical device manufacturers, and wouldn't you know, one of them wanted to recruit me. <laughs> wouldn't you know. Yes. Wouldn't you know. <laughs> That's how it works. Here sprouts up another path I didn't expect. Mm-hmm. And so um, so I went down that path. I went to work for a large medical device company in New Jersey. And they said, Amber, we're going to pay you what you're worth. And I thought, cool. Fantastic. Cause yeah. Because the, gov- the government, you know, well, it's good, but... Not so much the pay. <laughs> no, and I advanced, honestly, Jill, I advanced really quickly. I, cl- mm-hmm. I climbed up the GS ladder every year, mm-hmm. one mm-hmm. rung at a time, mm-hmm. and I was in a good spot. I didn't know what people yeah. in the private sector made. I never asked. Right. Growing up in Washington, D.C., you know, you just, the GS system is what it is. Yeah, and and Amber's talking about the way that the government pays um, government employees through the, it's a system called the JS system. Yeah, been part of it too, yeah. You, you're not used to bonuses. and That's right. So I moved to New Jersey as a single girl, mm-hmm. um, and I had a blast. I traveled the world mm-hmm. um, doing mm-hmm. bloodborne pathogen training and safety and advocacy and policy work all over the world, conferences. Oh. And um, it was exciting, and it was lonely. Mm. Yeah. Turn, turning around, you know, people in my family or friends saying, oh, my gosh, you're going to Stockholm. How exciting. You, need, you should spend a couple more days there. And, mm-hmm. But when you're flying in and out and you're by yourself, a couple more days alone as a tourist isn't – Ideal. So I found mm-hmm. myself after three or four years mm-hmm. thinking, mm, I don't know if this is for me. It's got to be something more here. Yeah. 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 So what, what, did the, what did the road present to you? Because it sounds like your career up to this point has been, huh, look at this. This just showed up for me. Well, what yeah. showed up next was breast cancer. I was diagnosed um, at age 34. I was living in Baltimore at the time. Um, The company that I worked for had moved me down to um, open up a Washington, D.C. office, and I couldn't really afford a place in D.C., so I bought a house, a little row house in Baltimore, Mm -hmm. and commuted down every day on the train or drove. It was Mm -hmm. a very stressful time. I, I didn't love my supervisor i hated the commute i was still in that corporate environment and you weren't feeling well and i was just diagnosed with something that back then uh i hadn't heard of anybody in their 30s who had been diagnosed with this kind of disease so um and is it also what claimed your mother 
No, she yeah. actually had a stress-related death, and which is mm -hmm. why nursing was something that I didn't want to go into. She died of a heart attack at the age of 46. Mm -hmm. That makes sense why you chose what you did. Yes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and mm. so I, I was lucky that I had this guy in my life, not a boyfriend guy, a professional mentor, who wanted to explore a different route in the infectious disease space at the time, which was healthcare-associated infections. Mm -hmm. So MRSA was gaining huge popularity, not good popularity, but right. mm -hmm. healthcare facilities were rampant with C. difficile and MRSA and all of these drug-resistant bacteria in patient populations. And he got... Mm -hmm. Um, he got the buy-in from leadership within this device company to start this whole new focus area, and he asked me to join him. Hmm. And this was this was sparking your interest. You had said a while back, like microbes were something you were fascinated with. Yes, and I thought mm -hmm. microbes in patient populations. Cool. This is even more interesting to me. Yeah, and um. There was a location in Baltimore that this company had, and um, so I thought, shoot, that's an even better commute. Just I was living in Baltimore, commuting in Baltimore, and um, I was able to find an oncologist that was also in Baltimore. So this was all working out. Mm -hmm. um, the company gave me nice medical leave package so that I could focus on getting well. And then when I was going through chemo, I was home and um, my friends took care of me and my family took care of me. And when I was doing radiation, which was every day for seven weeks, I would pop over to the hospital, do my radiation, then go up to work. And it, it worked out great. It really did. And the health coverage was wonderful. And I ended up reconnecting with a guy who I was a friend of a friend who I had met at a wedding mm -hmm. and he called me because he heard that I was going through treatment and I didn't realize at the time that we would end up dating. So mm -hmm. I started dating my now husband hmm. back then uh, when I was bald and going through radiation. What a guy, yeah. huh? What a guy. He is. He just celebrated this week his fiftieth birthday, um, and so we're we're still together. We'll be celebrating our fifteenth wedding anniversary in two weeks, and um, that's a beautiful that's a that's a beautiful story, Amber. <laughs> it's a beautiful story, but this guy lived in Houston. Oh dang! We got to the point maybe a couple months into our long distance dating that one it was clear one person had to move and i honestly was ready to leave the east coast behind me mm -hmm. um it had New been chapter. yeah been a tough couple of years and so for me it was a no-brainer moved in with him houston and then we got married shortly after that and have lived all over the country with my other pathways that have mm -hmm. emerged yeah. Oh my gosh. What a fun story. What a fun. So you get to Houston. Do you have a job or how, what did you do? Yeah. What happened? So I stayed on with the medical company. They were nice enough to let me remote work, which wasn't really a thing back then. 
Um, but I had started my doctorate at Johns Hopkins when I was living in Baltimore. Mm-hmm. And I thought, I, it, now that um, you know, I'm here in Houston, I might as well continue to pursue that. So I just transferred all my records over, um, found a great couple of mentors, including um, Mary Ann Smith, who's at the School of Public Health, Sarah Felkner, George Delclos, this amazing team of people, Larry Whitehead, um, just these really wonderful people that brought me in. I got a NIOSH, um, I got a NIOSH traineeship, so to finish my doctorate in environmental occupational health was free to me. And they offered me a stipend. I had to be a graduate research assistant, of course, and give them my due time. So um, so I was at University of Texas School of Public Health for several years while I finished up my coursework and worked part-time as a graduate research assistant and um, was settled in Houston in this mm-hmm. life at the Texas Medical Center, which is an amazing place for healthcare, mm-hmm. <laughs> until I got a call from a recruiter uh, from another mega medical Device and pharmaceutical company, company okay, who uh, had this job opportunity out in California. Hmm. So we, I took it. Mm-hmm. We moved out to Orange County, California, and I did professional education in the sterilization and disinfection space. Still oh. sticking with these microbes. Can't you shake sure, these microbes. You sure were. Oh, my gosh, Amber. That's so interesting. That's so interesting. And and also, gosh, we're going to have to have a conversation, you know, not on the podcast about one of my jobs in, in college, which was um, sterilizing medical instruments. Oh, yes, Jill, we need that. <laughs> which started out by washing them by hand. Yes. Uh, spec- speculums, and any woman listening knows what I'm talking about. Yes, and glutaraldehyde. Mm-hmm. And glutaraldehyde, mm-hmm. Yes, the, f- the first time I ever had a colonoscopy, unfortunately, in my very young life, like you, I've had um, young life medical issues. I uh, was about to have my first colonoscopy. I'm in my late 20s, and a nurse asked me, what do I do for a living? And I tell her, well, I work for OSHA. And she's like, I'm pregnant, and I have to use glutaraldehyde every day. Can you tell me about, you know, blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, you're about to give me anesthesia. And I said, I'll follow up with you after you wake me up. Yes. <laughs> oh, it's such important work, Amber. Okay, so it, please. It, it is, <laughs> and I want to. I just want to give a shout out to sterile processing technicians, people who work in central sterile um, endoscopy nurses who are doing their own endoscopes. These people keep hospitals running and patients safe. And I just have so much respect for this group of professionals that are underpaid and overlooked and overworked, physical hazards abundant, hot water, slippery surfaces, caustic chemicals. Um, and a patient would, like you said, you mm-hmm. knew better as a patient going mm-hmm. under mm-hmm. anesthesia about um, endoscopy and how important it is to keep all of the channels of endoscopes clean 
um, for healthcare associated infections. So for me, this was a huge, wonderful learning opportunity. Yeah. Um, but again, I didn't feel settled in, in a corporate environment. <laughs> it was, it was tough for, for me. Um, I didn't feel like I had the swagger. I didn't <laughs> drive a BMW. I loved my coworkers. Absolutely mm-hmm. loved them. Mm-hmm. A lot of them, which were nurses, endoscopy nurses or OR mm-hmm. nurses. Mm-hmm. I absolutely loved it. One of my, two of my great friends, Sherry and Barbara, still, um, you know, in that community that I will never, never forget how much I learned in that space. But that corporate environment and loved living in Southern California. Boy, was that beautiful. Living near Laguna Beach was a bit more luxurious than living near Galveston Beach, but you know, the seabirds are all the same, and I'm addicted to seabirds. But you weren't you weren't finding your niche in uh, corporate America. I wasn't. Um, and then I meet these two guys who are starting up this um, textile company, scrub company, and they want me to move to the other Orange County which is Orange County, Florida. So my husband and I, I, you know, I, they want me to be the director of regulatory affairs and help them with FDA submission for a new product they have. And so here we go, pack up the, pack up the dogs and the Uh RV and go across country one more time to Florida. Uh So we live just North of Orlando and absolutely loved central Florida. Great place to live. It's close to my sister, close to a lot of my cousins, and we really enjoyed our time there. And and so, my gosh, what a switch. It's a, a scrub manufacturer, textiles. You've been medical device, way different work environments. Way very, different. very different, and I was really excited about it. A nice mm-hmm. small office with creative, innovative people who... Mm-hmm had the nerve to go out and start a company, you know, it was very exciting to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and also the opportunity, I had dealt with the FDA lots, um, especially working in large medical companies, you do. Mm-hmm. Um, I was excited to learn how to, to do that part of creating all the research that you need to make um, a package to submit to the FDA for a safe product. That mm-hmm. that opportunity was one that I hadn't had in medical device companies. The regulatory teams are massive, mm-hmm. and so this was my chance to do it, to explore it all on my own. I love to learn, um, and so I was. Um, my husband and I were there for a few years, and um, one of my. Um, longtime mentors, and this was when she I worked with her lots at um, OSHA, and she's was key in the Needle Stick Safety and Prevention Act. Was Janine Jager? She was at the University of Virginia, and she ran this organization called the International Healthcare Worker Safety Center. I used mm-hmm. her her EpiNet data, which is Sharp's injury data, to do my doctoral dissertation. Oh wow! And then you met her. And well, I met her when I was at OSHA, so I met her way back oh, sure. in the mm-hmm. in the nineties. Mm-hmm. And she pops up in my life again and mm-hmm. says, um, "You know, the we're going to take the this University of Virginia's 
I'm no longer interested in keeping this center here. And um, what would you say about taking it on? Mm. And my mm. current startup employer thought this might be a good idea. Um, branching out, taking on a center, doing more advocacy. So I took it on and uh, for, for a couple months while I was with that employer and then we decided it was best for me to go and run the center full time. Mm -hmm. And so um, my husband and I were now both working for ourselves in Florida and loved it but his whole family was in Texas and we thought at this point in our lives we can go wherever we want and so mm -hmm. we moved back to the Houston area to be close to friends and back on the water and closer to his family mm -hmm. in Dallas and north of Dallas and moved back here in about 2017 and we've been here in the same house since 2017. And do you feel settled? My roots are expanding. It's a little yeah. tougher to pluck me out of the earth. Uh-huh. Uh -huh. Yeah. Well, I mean, you've 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 been and seen so many things, Amber. It it makes sense that this is feeling a little more settled. It yeah. it is. I think the water also settles me. My nickname is Bird. <laughs> Bird or Birdie. My mom called me that since I was a wee one and most of my closest girlfriends call me Bird or Birdie, and um, Jill, I mean, the birds here, oh, the egrets and the herons and the night herons and the, um, mm. the seagulls and the pelicans mm. and the osprey, mm. uh, it, they, they just speak to me. You found your place. I believe that I have. Yeah. And so your, your current gig, as we started talking yeah. about, is is um is running the international safety center yes yes so tada we're ended yeah. up here at, at the gigs uh -huh. um the safety center is a small nonprofit. um okay. let's just get real about cash um mm -hmm. i can't live on it at the mm -hmm. way it the where it is now mm -hmm. we take contributions from different organizations to keep it going so a gig life is high risk high reward um, my time is my own, my health insurance is my own, which is mm -hmm, pretty awful. Mm -hmm. um, and once the pandemic started, oh, so I had been approached many years ago to write a book. And I wrote a book called um, Preventing Occupational Exposures to Infectious Disease in Healthcare. Oh my gosh. It was I didn't, a, I didn't know this about you. Okay. Yeah, so it was a pocket guide <clears throat> meant for somebody who doesn't really know the space that well. They're working in a hospital. They've been yeah. thrown into this position for creating maybe their exposure control plan for bloodborne or for infectious disease. Mm -hmm. And it has um, chapters on bloodborne infection and um, bacterial infection, viral infection. I worked with one of my buddies Rodney Rohde on um, the chapters on microorganisms, microbiology. <laughs> and here comes the COVID pandemic. Mm -hmm. I'm in the final stages of editing for the book. Um, <laughs> the 1918 flu is in there. 
but oh. coronavirus as COVID-19 is not in there. Oh my gosh. Yes, so the publishers, <laughs> Springer Nature, wanted me to add a chapter on pandemics. And gosh, we don't know very much at this. We didn't know very much at this point, right? So are you like, what do I do? We yeah. didn't. So mm-hmm. I had this network of people um, I had taken on now. I had taken on um, a role with the with NIH, with the um, NIEHS. They have mm-hmm. these programs for um, worker health and safety. They run grants and... Which is where you and I met. Yes, mm-hmm. um, with Chip Hughes. Mm-hmm. He brought me on to be their infectious disease slash COVID lead. Mm-hmm. And, um, right, that's where you and I met really mm-hmm. early on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, early 2020. Yep. Mm-hmm. And then the book, so I at that point I had found somebody who helped me write the chapter on COVID, on pandemic. She's an infection preventionist. And the book comes out. And so now I have this relevant book. I think I made $300 on it last year. <laughs> it did not bring me the riches. For all the but for all the budding authors out there, thanks for the reality check, Amber. Okay. Actually, I think I just saw a deposit for $324 in my bank account. Oh man. Um, but it's out there and it's wonderful, wonderful experience. Um long experience and um then you know through facebook and advertising some of our webinars that we did with the worker training program Mm -hmm. i had some of my other osha friends retired osha friends um especially a shout out to dorothy doherty she was a big wig at osha for a long time and went on to lead a, a bunch of hired uh, contractors for some COVID work and some other OSHA contract work. And now I continue to work on the OSHA call center has prompt three for COVID and a team really? of wonderful operators and subject matter experts answer that line every week. And we have okay. some other projects going on with the agency. So I didn't know that. I didn't know that line existed. Amber. Yes. Tell, tell the listeners about that. Yeah. Talk well, about that just a little it's bit. a sad story and a wonderful story. So um, Dorothy managed to bring together some of her OSHA friends and other friends and contractors and customer service reps that had lifetime experiences working for telecommunications companies, just this wonderful team of people. Mm-hmm with the presidential funds for COVID, um, part of the emergency response funds, Mm -hmm. there was money for the agency to create a prompt specifically for COVID. So CDC had one, OSHA has one. If you call 1-800-321-OSHA and press prompt three, that's the team of operators and supervisors, subject matter experts that answer the phone. And we um, we hear that that contract is ending at the end of June with the public health emergency. Actually, May 11th is a big, sad or happy day. Yeah, I mean, we're we're today is the day. May 11th is the day we're recording. So, yes, we've go on, Amber. Yeah, yeah our public mm-hmm. health emergency is over. Mm-hmm. 
Um, that doesn't mean COVID is over or mm-hmm. will be anytime soon. And I th- I'm hoping that we have learned the lessons that we've learned and keep them in place mm-hmm. for this virus and for whatever's next. next. Mm-hmm. And I'm hoping that the agency continues its work on an infectious di- OSHA, meaning an infectious disease standard, um, and that they continue to do their wonderful, wonderful work on really leading. They led, I would say, led prevention efforts and the concept of aerosolization of COVID very early on as a leading agency. And I'm just so proud of the work that they do and always have done um, and the work that they will continue to do. So even though this COVID prompt may end sometime soon, it doesn't mean that there aren't wonderful people at the agency who respond to infectious disease efforts going on. So what does what does life look like these days for your career? What gets you excited now? Um, are there are there new paths that are opening? Yeah, well, during the pandemic, I got really big into Pilates. And so <laughs> at, uh, at well, right before I turned 50 last year, I thought, you know, some of the Pilates, the club Pilates organization is so wonderful and friendly and you show up and they're just very, very happy to see you. And one of the general managers said, Amber, you should do our teacher training. I thought, oh, what? I don't know about that. It's 500 hours, Jill, 500 hours. I, I'm in a 500 hour training right now, a, a yoga study, not Pilates, but a yoga study. So yes, 500 hours is a big dedication. My partner that was keeps more ca- than my doctorate. Right? My partner keeps calling it yoga graduate school. So you have Pilates graduate school, yeah. (laughs) Um, And to teach Pilates also in another corporate environment, which is Club Pilates, even though, you know, they're individually owned as franchises, they want you to make sure everybody is absolutely safe. Mm -hmm. And so I get it. Um, Learning how to cue the moves in a right way, knowing if people have injuries or pregnancies or anything that we should know about as their instructors, they they need to feel safe in our hands. So I totally understand not just the physical journey about getting fitter and more lumber and Mm -hmm. um, fascia health and muscle tone and all of that stuff. I get mental health, Mm -hmm. but it's also the safety factor. So isn't it funny we're back in the safety business again? Again, and also where you started once you were in D.C. in, in, in uh, Yeah, exercise yeah. science. Right. There you are. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this has nothing to do with getting fouled out in a basketball game. <laughs> no, it doesn't. It's maybe finding something that I'm really – I can't do some of the fancy moves. I'm, I was six feet tall, kind of gra- – gravity doesn't like tall people all that much with the fancy <laughs> stuff. Um and going back into nutrition, I always had a passion for nutrition, and mm-hmm. I love doing individual health. Granted, the classes are group, so it's group health, mm-hmm. but clients come up to you and tell you very intimate things mm-hmm. about health scares they have or relationships or diet or fears or mm-hmm. um, bringing back maybe even the psychology element where I started in college Um, I, I just, Jill, I'm ready for just a path. So that was another path that opened and I just have maybe 
a faith in surrendering to what the world shows me. It's you've certainly proved it. I mean, this is your story. Mm-hmm. I, I, but I don't have an answer for what that is. Maybe I just need to leave myself open. Yeah. Yeah. So that's yeah. what's next. I'm, I'm surrendering. That is wonderful. That is wonderful. So Amber, as we're as we're getting close to the end of our conversation today, I'm wondering, you know, for for our listeners who range from everyone who has more experience than you and I to people who are just starting in their career and we've been talking and talking about occupational health, public health so much, is there is there something about that particular practice that you'd like to share with people who are thinking, maybe that's, I don't know, maybe that's something I want to dig into. How do I start? Yeah. I, I would say, um, I, let me start, well, with occupational safety and health, especially having both of us having been yeah. at, at OSHA, you see horrifying, horrifying things. That's right. Um, horrifying fatalities and hospitalizations and explosions and just awful, awful things. And mm-hmm. I would say you, just like with any clinical practice or um, you have to let them sink in and drive you, but you can't let them destroy you mm-hmm. because you have the opportunity to prevent that from happening again. That's right. You may not see the life that you save, potentially like a physician would in a hospital or an emergency department, mm-hmm. but you have the opportunity to save an enormous amount of life and lives and the ability to even to protect communities of people, whether mm-hmm. that is public health or maternal and child health or nutrition or industrial hygiene or occupational safety. I think that safety is universal, the safety of a worker, the safety of a person walking out on the street, the safety of a community. Mm -hmm. There are no limits to what you can do in a safety field. It just depends what kind of drives your heart. Oh, Amber, this has been phenomenal. I'm so happy to have heard your story. Um, and, and thank you for sharing it with the audience. I mean, what, what a wonderful career and contribution you've made to community and people and society. And I've learned so much from you, um, also. Mm. So I'm grateful that Mm. this accidentally brought us together and it's just been a wonderful, wonderful conversation. Thanks so much for, for keeping this podcast going and for doing what you do. So thank you. Thanks to you Mm. and to Emily. You're welcome. You're welcome. Thank you for saying that. Um, the podcast incidentally turned five years old yesterday. <gasps> Happy birthday. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> thank you so much. And thank you all for spending your time listening today. And more importantly, thank you for your contribution toward the common good, making sure your workers, including your temporary workers, make it home safe every day. If you aren't subscribed and want to hear past and future episodes, you can subscribe in iTunes, the Apple Podcast app, or any other podcast player you'd like. We'd love it if you could leave a rating and review us on iTunes. It really helps us connect the show with more and more professionals like Amber and I. Special thanks to Emily Gould, our podcast producer. And until next time, thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.